Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. We're excited to preview another weekend of college baseball here on the podcast. This is already weekend four. Uh, Time is flying already here. And uh, so we've got a lot of good games here to get to. We're going to talk a little bit about the one-year anniversary of the sport shutting down. Hopefully we won't get too maudlin there before we get into uh, what, what should be another fun weekend of college baseball. But first, I've got to let you know that the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, it's uh, March 11 as we record this. And, you know, like we uh, like I mentioned there, it's been a year since it's been a year. And, it, you know, a year ago today, Things started getting hairy in the the college sports world a year ago tomorrow. So if you're listening to this on Friday, uh, that is when the College World Series was canceled for the first time ever. Uh, the the NCAA made that decision a year ago to to cancel the 2020 College World Series, effectively ending the season. Um, there was some hope in some corners that there would still be able to be some sort of regular season, but that that hope probably had evaporated by the end of that weekend. Uh, so it's, uh, you, I, I think right now, if you look around the internet, you've seen a lot of reflections on the fact that it's been a year, a lot of, of reporting on the fact that it's it's been a year. And uh, Joe and I, you know, we don't have a ton to add on that, uh, in part because we've, we've already done a lot of that. I did some of that in the college preview issue, uh, but you know we uh, we also just have have been kind of consumed by the fact that there is a new season and the, the excitement that there are new games. But as the calendar you know turns here to to March 11, March 12, like it's it's impossible, Joe, not to think back to uh, to what was happening a year ago and and be thankful that there is college baseball back on the diamond right now. Yeah, bingo. Exactly. That's that's kind of exactly. My thoughts. You said that last year when the College World Series was canceled, that there were hopes that there were there was hope in some corners that some version of this sport could be played. I'm here to tell you there was hope in this corner, the corner I'm sitting in right now. But that is a good jumping off point for what I was going to say, which is that there was no logical reason for me to really truly hope that that was going to be the case. But I was just so desperately clinging to the idea that something could be made of it. I think we saw that a lot, right? I mean, how many conversations do you and I have with coaches who were, you know, some were angry, like, how could they do this? Like, why can't we just wait a couple of weeks and see where we're at? Why can't we just do this? Why can't we just do that? There some of them were more just resigned. Like, I can't believe this. Like, I don't know what to do with my, you know, so we were all kind of grappling with it. And, and my way of coping at least early on was the idea of like, okay, what if, you know, this isn't as bad as we think it is. And what if we look up on April 15th and we, we, you know, are in a position where we feel more comfortable about it. And in the end, of course, those, that was kind of foolhardy, which I guess is easy to say now, maybe it wasn't, didn't seem so foolhardy at the time, but it sure looks like it at this point. But I say all this to say, so Teddy and I are both avid listeners. We referenced it a few times of 
CBS Sports Ion College Basketball Podcast, hosted by Gary Parrish and Matt Norlander. And so a lot of the bits we do on this show are kind of uh, are, are a spiritual successor to what they're doing there, but in college baseball. And uh, Matt Norlander put together a montage at one of the, to open one of their recent podcasts um, of news clips, you know, laid, laid on a bed of music, a bunch of like news clips from, you know, CBS Sports and other news outlets at, to kind of recap how quickly things were moving back then. So it was, you hear a news clip of, you know, uh, conference tournaments are going to go on as scheduled. Then it was conference tournaments have no fans. Then it was, is there going to be an NCAA tournament? Oh, there's not going to be an NCAA tournament. And then, um, so I was listening to that as I was cooking uh, whenever he released it, a couple, I guess a week ago or so now. It was last Wednesday. There it is. Yeah. So, um, so you can find it on YouTube if you're interested. Yeah. And, it, and it's well done. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a really kind of a, a well done intro. Um, but I'm curious, Teddy, because I'm sure you listened to it. Um, if it did to you what it did to me, where I can sit here and kind of complain about um, first world problem stuff, like the fact that, you know, it's kind of cold outside at some of these games in the early season and my hands are freezing. And it's like, you know, uh, you know what are we doing playing this game in the winter? You know, those, those kind of yearly complaints I have, or just the complaints of like, oh, it sure is a bummer that, Team X or Team Y is shut down due to COVID, even though I, I understand why that has to be. But then I listened to that intro and I was able to, as I listened to it mentally, like my mind went back to the time and place of when all of that stuff was washing over us. And it truly, it's been said a million times, but it's true. Things went from zero to a hundred very, very quickly that week and in all sports. And so my mind was able to kind of transport back to that time. And just for a moment, like I felt the hopelessness and the fear and the sadness and the confusion and the anxiety of what that time of year was like for, for reasons even beyond sports, right? But thankfully, you know, after a couple of seconds, I was like, oh, but on the other hand, you know, we're, things are looking up right now. And that's not to downplay that, you know, the, the problems that COVID has caused, not least of which is, is more than 500,000 people have passed, unfortunately. But, um, but I, what it did kind of do is put me in a better place now to just be really thankful that we have college baseball. And I went into last weekend going to those games in Greenville for the Big Ten, really excited to be there and be out again and on the road and seeing games. And that felt pretty normal to me in, in, a, in a safe way. Um, but I don't know if you had the same reaction I did, but they're very briefly... I had to, you know, that intro listening to it brought me back to those feelings. And I had kind of, I think, discounted or maybe forgotten just how like disheartening that time was a year ago, because it's easy to kind of, we we kind of have this survivor's situation where now that we're kind of on the better half of this situation, it's easy to remember just how tough things were a year ago. And so I think that was a good reminder for me uh, to, again, to be thankful for, for what we're doing right now, even if it does have its bumps in the roads, because it sure could be a heck of a lot worse. Yeah. The, um, that, that a lot of people have told Norlander, um, that, that intro like caused a very emotional reaction and, you know, there are people crying or, um, 
know, talking about screaming in their car, being so excited at the end of it or, or whatever. And, you know, I, uh, you know, it, it, it is an emotional thing to, you know, go back and hear people talking like they were in real time. Like those are news clips uh, that, that we're talking about of, of, you know, what, what was being said at the time. And I went back this week and I listened to our podcast uh, after the season had been canceled. Like I looked through like my texts that day, just kind of trying to get a feel for like, what, what was that? And, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about, you know, just how much was unknown. Uh, You know, obviously it's interesting looking back at, you know, what some of what we were saying and the way in which like it becomes clear that we're not or a lot of people including us are not anticipating this to be a thing a few months later i you know i know i thought that there would be summer baseball like normal summer baseball not not the summer baseball that we had uh, and, and that that was you know not an outlier idea at all that that everything had just caught people so off guard um that there was a lot of just like unknown and unusualness and and the rest of it and you know so to to look back on that is uh it's a strange experience i i remember you know i've mentioned it here before that i was in florida that that week florida and georgia were going to open the sec season that weekend in gainesville i went down a few days early to do some reporting and also because Florida was playing Florida state and UCF was playing Miami. And so I had been in Orlando on the Wednesday, um, you know, seeing Miami beat UCF. Then I was driving back to Gainesville where I was staying and, you know, things are starting to go very poorly. Uh, you know, the, the situation at the big 10 tournament with Fred Hoiberg, the Nebraska basketball coach, who's visibly sick on the sidelines uh, is happening at some point in that, like Rudy Gobert tests positive. And, you know, I, I just remember driving back, like listening to, to some things, but also like having to turn some, some of those things off because I just like, I couldn't handle like mentally what was happening and uh, you know, what that might or might not mean. And, and just the, the challenges of all of that going forward, uh, so it's uh, I, it's interesting to look back on that. I know for a lot of people, you know, they haven't been able to attend a baseball game in the last year. Just the, you know, the, they're so excited that that baseball, you know, college baseball has returned. Uh, you're starting to see programs play home games that haven't played home games in like two years now. I think that's very exciting. Uh, you know, a lot of those northern teams hadn't been able to play a home game yet. And so now we're, we're starting to see places post like first home game in 655 days, or whatever it is. And, you know, so it's, it's great that, you know, we're in a better place in terms of figuring out how to work through this. Uh, obviously not completely out of the woods yet. Everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, most places still dealing with, you know, pretty significant uh, restrictions on what fans can and can't do and, and all the testing and the protocols. And there's still series being canceled every single weekend, every single day, basically, you know, there, there's a game getting canceled um, approximately. And, but, but we're still in a place where, 
you know, they're, they're finding a way to play safely. And for the most part, the season has, has gone through, um, in a, a, a pretty normal, pretty, uh, well, relatively normal and just a, a pretty, pretty well-run fashion that I'm working on reporting a story right now about how coaches are, are handling, like finding games, finding a series when, when something is, does get canceled due to COVID protocols and, everyone seems to be navigating that like as well as they possibly could. A lot of coaches are saying like, you know, yeah, like everyone's being very nice about it. They're being very proactive, letting us know if something is going to be a problem so that we can kind of get a head start on trying to find a replacement because one of the guiding principles this year seems to be uh, across the sport, just find a way to get, the players games they already lost one season just get them games get them a chance to do this thing uh that they're they're here to do get them get them the games to play whatever whatever that means just let's make it happen and i think that's been very heartening to see all right so with that we are going to move on to the portion of the program where we where we pick our games we're going to we're going to spotlight five series this weekend for for everyone to to keep an eye on joe and i are gonna you know talk through some of the keys to the 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 series for both teams what what it's going to take for them to to go out and 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 win this weekend uh so we're going to get to that in a second but first check this out all right joe we've got some good baseball on tap this weekend the ACC continues to provide us with, with great series. There are some fun non-conference series. For a lot of places, this is going to be the final weekend of non-conference action. Uh, the SEC, uh, the most of the, the major conferences that haven't already started conference play, you know, like the Big Ten and the ACC have, uh, they're gonna start conference play next week. So this is this is kind of one of the the last chances to get some marquee non-conference matchups uh and and it, it is delivering there are definitely some of those uh but first you know i we we gotta we're, we're gonna get to some of these we're gonna get to vanderbilt oklahoma state we're gonna get to south carolina texas uh but joe first we gotta get to murray state and eastern illinois the racers coming in hot i mean maybe not so much on the record but you know look at who they've played the last four games it's arkansas and louisville and uh they've played them tough and Eastern Illinois coming off of a series win at Kansas State. It's a it's an interesting one down there in uh, I don't know the Ohio River Valley. I guess um, they're both close to that, right? I think that's about right. Um, the Racers as a, as a program name like that that's based on thoroughbred racing, I presume. I mean, Murray yes. State is it, I mean, the, the, the mascot is a horse. That's right. I, I did know that, but um, but yeah, uh, big big one in the Ohio Valley Conference. Murray State, Eastern Illinois. Eastern Illinois coming off a series win against Kansas State. So who who knows? Uh, Trey Sweeney, heck of a hitter, uh, shortstop, Eastern Illinois. Um, that's the one thing you could say about Eastern Illinois. It seems like they they always they always have like a, an intriguing guy. So this year it might be Trey Sweeney. They had Will Klein on the mound not that long ago. Um, so I guess last year would have been Will Klein. Yeah. So um, yeah, certainly we'll we'll be keeping uh, at least part of one eye on that series in the OVC. It uh, it's an intriguing one, and I know Joe's uh, uh, our noted OVC watcher slash resident. So we'll, yeah, I uh, and I don't know what to make so far. The, like, just as a quick aside, like, it's been a weird year in the OVC already. Like, it's certainly looking like maybe 
I'm starting to think, uh, <laughs> I know you, you don't throw these like random series out there at the beginning to actually be jumping off points on, on just like real discussions. They're, they're kind of just like a bit, but I will say, I'm starting to think with the OVC that we may have just gotten really spoiled there for a short period of time where we went from the Steve Beezer led SEMO teams that were really talented led by, you know, a big leaguer and Joey Lucchese, like directly to two very, very good Tennessee tech teams. And then maybe we got a little bit spoiled thinking that it, it might be a league where there was a team like that every year in the last couple of years, it feels like it's settled more into just being kind of your standard issue, low major conference. And um, so, that, and I think that's kind of where we're headed this year. Like there's some things I like with certain teams or some, some teams that I thought were going to be pretty good there that have struggled out of the gate. So we'll just have to see, but uh, you know, I thought maybe it was, it was turning into a league that was going to produce that kind of team more often than not. And it really just hasn't been the case since um, you know, 2018 Tennessee tech. Yeah, that is uh, that is definitely true, and probably only going to become more true once Jacksonville State exits the league. Yes, I believe this is their final year. Uh, that's correct. Yep, that's and, you know, and that's that was the team, right? I mean, I think we've actually have had this conversation on the podcast where that was the team that was really set up to run that conference. Good facility, geographic advantages over the rest of the conference. Um, you know, uh, history of success. It's not like they were some startup program um, and now they're, they're bolting. And so that's a, that's a blow to the OVC, I guess, from the standpoint of they could have been that tent pole team that kind of helps keep the other boats in the conference afloat. So anyway, there you go, listener, there's your OVC deep dive for the day. I know that's what you're waiting on. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to some top 25 action. We've got a few of those series this week and, you know, Joe, there's a there's a Big Ten SEC basketball challenge that's like an official thing where the conferences like meet up and like decide which schools like over the course of a week, which schools from from the conference are going to play and they get all the Big 12 teams playing the SEC schools. And uh, you listener may also be familiar with the ACC Big Ten challenge also in basketball and. Uh, there is no such thing in baseball, but this weekend we have a little bit of a SEC Big 12 challenge. We've got Vanderbilt going to Oklahoma State, and we've got Texas hosting South Carolina. Those are those are two of the series we're, we're going to focus on here. Joe, let's start with Vanderbilt and Oklahoma State, both one, because Vanderbilt is the highest ranked team of any of these. They're number three. Oklahoma State comes in at number 19. And also because, Joe, you wrote about the Pokes this week and how they've gotten off to their unbeaten 10-0-1 start. Yeah, it's, it's a program that really has been defined recently by offense. I think we all remember that 2019 team and that fantastic, I mean, really, truly, I say this without hyperbole, at least in my mind, that, that Texas Tech-Oklahoma State Super Regional was one of the more entertaining Super Regionals that I can really remember. There's been ones that have had better endings, right? I mean, everybody remembers UCSB over Louisville, for example. But in terms of just three games being absolutely airtight, like that super regional really stands out to me. But that was a very offensive team. And you know, last year's team was looking like a very offensive team. And in the grand scheme of things, 2018 was an offensive team. So, but this year, the, the, the script has flipped a little bit for Oklahoma State. And I mean, this is a, a pitching-led outfit, at least at, at this point in time. The team ERA is under two. And I, I think what I like most about it is the way it's made up. It's 
it's a mix of guys who have been around forever. I'm talking about Parker Scott, uh, the, their, their Friday guy, left-hander, uh, Brett Stanley in the bullpen. And then you've got new faces. Uh, Justin Robleski, junior college transfer who started his career at Clemson, is the, the, the top guy there. And then you've got that group of freshman pitchers that we talked about. And not all of them, I guess, were true freshmen last year, but a group of young pitchers who went into last year really looking to prove themselves that didn't get that chance that are now taking steps forward. So Justin Campbell, who's been dominant on the midweeks, he's got 32 strikeouts in 17 innings. I think that's pretty good, in my opinion. Uh, but Bryce Osmond, the highest rated guy they had from a recruiting standpoint coming into last year, and that group has been a lot better this year. Um, so it's, it's not just the fact that they returned an old pitching staff, for example. It's not just that. It's also not just that, hey, here's a group of new faces. We're just going to immediately inject talent into this pitching staff. It's a, it's a mix. And so I, I kind of like the, the makeup of it from that standpoint. Um, the other thing about it is that it's a team that really hasn't gotten its offense going. Now, it would even if the offense had been pretty good, I think it would still be a team that was led by its pitching because the pitching has been that good. And it's good stuff, by the way. Like, for the most part, you know, Parker Scott is, is a little more of a, a pitchability guy from the left side that, that has enough stuff to get by. But everybody else, we're talking about guys with, with real stuff. So I think it would be a pitching-led outfit kind of in any circumstance. But then you have the fact that their offense has, has stumbled a little bit out of the gate, and some of that has been due to some injuries. Houston Morrill has been out uh, since early this season. I think he just played the first week, roughly. Carson McCusker, who's been in the program for a long, long time, big power bat, hasn't played at all. And the indications that uh, media has gotten from Josh Holiday is that those, the return of those two are not necessarily imminent. Um, now, I, I don't have any specifics on that, but when asked if there were any new updates on those two players, the answer was just no. So I, I you know, it, it, I don't, I wouldn't expect those two players immediately back in the lineup necessarily. They, they have had some guys who have been, Jake Thompson has been really good. Juco transfer Christian Incarnacion Strand at third base has five home runs. So there've been little things here and there, but you look at Cade Cabanis, another guy who with McCusker has been in the program for a long time is hitting under 200. Caden Trinkle, who as a freshman last year, like really got out of the gate hot, is hitting under 200. Max Hewitt, when one of the grinder types in the lineup, is hitting about 200. Alex Garcia, another senior, you know, super senior, is hitting 214. Um, so they just – I have a lot of confidence those guys will get going because this team does always hit. And even if it's not the most consistent offense you've ever seen, because, you know, let's be honest, they've had some offenses that will hit a ton of home runs, but they're also going to strike out a decent amount. So consistency is not necessarily the name of their game, but it is a team that when they're going really well can really hit the ball. And I think they'll get to that point, but, but it has not been a particularly good start on that side for them. Um, and I don't know that a series against Vanderbilt necessarily is going to be the elixir to getting an offense out of neutral. Yeah, I would agree with that. This is not the weekend that you're going to look for your offense to get right. Um, we don't know to this point how Vanderbilt is going to line up its pitching. Its pitching has gotten – because opening weekend for Vanderbilt got delayed all the way to a doubleheader on Monday, and then they made the decision to throw both Rocker and Lighter in those doubleheader games against Wright State on that, that Monday at the end of opening day weekend – or opening weekend, the the rotation has gotten out of whack. They, they have not – 
gotten it back to a point where Rocker is on Friday night and Lighter is on Saturday. Interesting side note, Kamar Rocker is four weeks into his third season at Vanderbilt. He is the most famous player in college baseball. He is, as of right now, the number one player in the draft class, according to Baseball America. He has yet to pitch on Friday nights. It's kind of remarkable. I think that would surprise uh, people. That's just a, <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's just one of those weird things. Like they obviously as a freshman had a lot of pitchers in front of him and he only got as far as Saturday. And then last year, when you might have thought, well, okay, like returning freshman of the year, like was I think he was their Saturday starter that that year. That that's that's what I remember going into the tournament. I mean, he pitched in game two of the the finals and of the super regional and all the rest of it. Uh, Maybe you move him to Friday night with, uh, with Drake fellows moving on. No, uh, they didn't. They went with the veteran, uh, you know, on Friday night and left rocker alone on Saturday. Like, okay, that's fine. Uh, And now here we are. It's junior season. He is supposed to be the Friday starter and he just hasn't been able to pitch on a Friday yet because of that, that opening day snow, snowstorm uh, situation there in Nashville. So anyway, he could potentially be moved to Friday here uh, or they could leave them on Saturday and Sunday for another week. And, you know, well, again, we, I don't know what, what Vanderbilt's thinking on that is, uh, but regardless when those two throw, it's going to be very hard for opponents to hit them. They've allowed 11 total hits in 30 innings between the two of them. So if you're if you're Oklahoma State and you're trying to to get going a little bit offensively, this is this is not not the weekend for you. I, I wouldn't think they're they're going to have to pitch against this Vanderbilt team. They're going to have to match them, and that's not the easiest thing to do. However, Vanderbilt has played eleven games. Roughly half of them have been decided by three or fewer runs. And Vanderbilt has lost one of those games. They're 10 and one. So it's not an impossibility. And then also they've played 11 games. They have yet to play a team that's at Oklahoma state's level. They've done that against Wright state, Georgia state, and um, uh, Illinois, Chicago on the weekends, their midweeks have not been that impressive either. Like this is the, by far the best team that they will have faced. So that, that I, I got a question in my chat on Monday like can Oklahoma state even like make this a series? Like, yeah, if Oklahoma state doesn't make this a series in Stillwater, like they got some real issues and like, we're going to have to completely reevaluate what we think of Oklahoma state because I, you know, I, I'm not here to say that it's been a series, like really intense, like very competitive series every time out for Vanderbilt this year. Like they have also steamrolled these teams at, at times, but they have played competitive games with every team on a weekend so far, Illinois, Chicago kept it close against lighter. Um, so did Wright state and, uh, you know, Georgia state won a game, uh, on the weekend there. So it, to, to think that that Vanderbilt is going to come to Stillwater and just blow Oklahoma state out of the out of, out of the Stillwater, um, it, it's not going to happen. I, I just don't see how that is, is going to happen, particularly when Oklahoma state, you know, is, is going to be very excited to play this at home in O'Brate. Uh, you know, this is, this is the biggest thing that they've, they've had to date in their new stadium. So I, I fully expect them to be ready to go in this. 
I, uh, I like I said, I, I think the key is Oklahoma State's got a pitch at a really high level. Uh, Vanderbilt has a good offense, no doubt about that. Dominic Keegan off to a really nice start. He has four home runs. He's hitting 548. Enrique Bradfield, uh, Vanderbilt's speedy freshman center fielder, hitting 394. And if he gets on base, you better be ready because he has 11 stolen bases already. And he has elite speed. That's something Vanderbilt really hasn't had in recent years. And, you know, they're making good use of it already. Jason Gonzalez off to a really nice start. Carter Young hitting for some power and hitting just overall. In addition to playing a really great shortstop, he, he looks like it, absolutely the player that he was expected to be going back to his junior year in high school. And then he, he had kind of a down year leading to the draft. And that's why he's at Vanderbilt now. But things are looking real good there. So it's an offense that you're going to have to, to pitch well against to contain. But it, it also is an offense that has been contained by teams that are not on Oklahoma State's level. Um, so if if Oklahoma State and that good pitching can keep it going this weekend, I, I would I would definitely anticipate them winning one of these games. And I think that they can make a run of the series. I'm not going to tell you that Oklahoma State should win this series, but I I just wouldn't be stunned if this series came down to Sunday. I know I'm right there with you. Uh, by the way, on Enrique Radfield, like it's kind of a, it's to me it's it's fairly rare when a, a freshman as as talented and as hyped as as he was coming into college truly exceeds expectations. We get a lot of meet players that meet expectations, but he's almost really exceeded expectations for the type of catalyst he's been. Not only the, the stolen bases and hitting for the high average, but he's walked more than he struck out. And even if you want to apply the okay, but what kind of pitching has he seen? Like okay, I, I get it, but there are a lot of freshmen out there who uh, don't have that type of plate discipline against anybody when they enter the college game. So I think that's pretty impressive as, as well. Um, I'm with you. Oklahoma state's going to gonna have to pitch well in the series. Like they're not going to be able to sit back and try to rely on, on offensive output to win the series. And, and that way, I think it's, it's a good kind of a prove it series for Oklahoma state because you can play kind of the same game you played with Vanderbilt with Oklahoma state, where you look at, their schedule and you see Wichita state and a midweek against little rock and Illinois state and, and grand Canyon. I think those teams are better on the, on the whole than what Vanderbilt has seen so far. However, I don't know that there's an offensive juggernaut in that group. I think those are by and large uh, teams that are, you know, either get by kind of like Illinois state with just a lot of veterans or grand Canyon, I think is a little bit heavier on the mound this year than, than offensively. So I, I don't know what kind of offenses they've necessarily faced yet. So you can kind of play that same game with Oklahoma state. So I do think it is important, even if it ends up being a series loss, I think it's important that the pitching staff comes out and proves that what we've seen so far from them. And I believe it's not a mirage, but it is incumbent upon them to go out and prove that it's not a mirage. What we've seen from that unit so far. I, I also think it's significant that Vanderbilt has yet to play a road game, uh, which is rare for Vanderbilt this time of year. Typically they would have uh, by now, at least played a neutral site game and they haven't done that. So what's, what's just, what's it going to look like them going on the road for the first time in this strange season? I, I, I don't think that can be discounted, even though Obright's not going to be like rocking like it would, if it were sold out. Um, you know, I imagine that the Cowboys fans would, would flock to this series if they could, uh, but it is, it is just a different thing that Vanderbilt's going to have to, to contend with this, this weekend. I don't know how it, it ends up affecting things, but also weather this weekend in Stillwater, not great. And so I know Josh Holiday 
has talked a little bit about, you know, we're, we're already looking at it. We're trying to figure out where our windows are, uh, which is not a great place to be going into a weekend series. I know for both teams, I think it's very important. They get these three games in because these are resume building games, honestly, uh, beyond just wanting to play as many games as possible. These are also the types of games where, you know, you, you want to get all three of them in so that you can build that resume as much as you can. So they're going to give it a shot, but the weather's, not super promising over the weekend so i think this may be the type of series where it's a lot of sitting around kind of waiting to see when they can when they can squeeze things when they can squeeze it in and that probably speaks to the deeper pitching staff having the advantage and that would be vanderbilt but you know again it's not like oklahoma state is is lacking on that end it's just good luck finding many pitching staffs that are deeper than than what vanderbilt's running out there these days indeed all right, Joe, we're, uh, we're going to move on now to the other game in that SEC Big 12 challenge, and that is South Carolina and Texas. It's a series that has long been in the making after those two um, you know, famously met in Omaha uh, in the early part of this century. Exciting series in Austin. Texas comes in at 8-5. and five. They're number 20 in the top 25. South Carolina, number 10, they're undefeated at 11 and 0. And boy, am I glad that we jammed them into the top 10 this week. That was one of the last things we did in our top 25 discussion was find a way to get South Carolina into the top 10. And I feel great about that. Uh, this team is, is flying. They, uh, they, they've really been impressive all around. I, I've been very impressed by both the pitching staff, the depth of it, and, and the guys at the front end. Thomas Farr has been really good on Fridays. Brandon Jordan's been solid. Uh, Julian Bosnick has been really, really good on Sundays. Will Sanders has done some very impressive things coming out of the bullpen. And then you also have like Brett Carey, who has pretty well established himself as, as being just a, a high-end reliever. And uh, so they can run an awful lot of pitching at you. But then they also have Wes Clark, who's off to as good of a start as anyone in the country, hitting 410 with eight homers. Braylon Wimmer has gone really under the radar, unfortunately, because he plays on the same team as Wes Clark and he's hitting 382 with, with four bombs. That's a, that's a nice start. And Brady Allen, Andrew Eister, these are veterans who are, who are off to uh, impressive starts at the plate themselves. This is a team that defends pretty well. I like, I see a pretty complete team here with the Gamecocks and Texas is going to have its hands full this weekend, but you know, since that opening weekend thing, text, you know, when they went 0-3 in Arlington, Texas has played a lot better. They're 8-2 since then. That includes a series win last weekend against Houston. Ty Madden looked like one of the best pitchers in the country, no doubt. Um, in that, that series win, he struck out 14 in a shutout. And, uh, you know, Texas has plenty of pitching behind him. They are still kind of maybe figuring out some of the best roles. Pete Hansen is still working his way up to being what he can be. But this is a team that, you know, especially in that ballpark uh, in Austin, where, you know, they know how to play in dish Falk. They're, they're going to play good defense. They're going to pitch. They're going to, you know, find the gaps. They're, they're difficult to beat there. And I think South Carolina is going to have their hands full. I, yeah, I think that's absolutely, absolutely the case. Fun, fun series. I, I, you know, I think this is, um, uh, I, runs will probably be at a premium given what we know about the Texas pitching uh, South Carolina's offense quite good as you detailed 
Um, so, but Texas's pitching, I think it, go, it goes a long way towards neutralizing that. And then, you know, Texas still figuring out who it's going to be offensively and South Carolina, oh, by the way, can pitch pretty well also. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the 2002 matchup. These two faced off in the finals of the CWS. Uh, the first year, if memory serves, where they did a no, that was 03. So no, just Rice one year, year, right? One year prior to going to a three-game series. But uh, 2002 Texas. Uh, shout out to Omar Quintanilla. Uh, shout out to Jeff Ontiveros, Texas legend. Of course, shout out to Houston Street, uh, Buck Cody, Justin Simmons, guys like that. Not the most um, star-studded, by the way. Texas team. I think it kind of a classic Augie success story where it's not with all the greats that Texas has had through the years. Like this was not that team necessarily in terms of guys, you know, from, from pro baseball, Houston street, far and away, the, the most famous guy that, that this particular group had, um, but uh, put it together and had a really good run to, uh, to a national title. So um, I remember very vividly where I was watching this championship game, not because it was like a, not because it like really imprinted on me. Like it wasn't in the, you know, like I wasn't glued to it necessarily. I was watching it. It just kind of happens to be the type of memory that for some reason is frozen in my, in my brain for, for some reason. So anyway, uh, good callback there because I had not put that together. This was the first time since that, uh, since that matchup that they had faced off here. I think for Texas, this is big um, because I think it's an opportunity. I think it's, I think it's a really good offensive opportunity because I, you know, South Carolina's pitching staff is good, but at some point I think we are going to need to see if Texas is going to be as good as we think they, they can be in the best version of themselves. At some point, Texas is going to have to produce against good pitching. And so far it's been able to get its own good pitching, which has helped them win games and just kind of do enough against teams that aren't quite as talented as they are. And, uh, you know, shouts to, speaking of shouts, shouts to Zach Zubia and guys like Ivan Melendez who are off to really good starts. But, um, you know, for the most part, they've got a lot of guys they're still waiting on to, to come around. And at some point, if this group is going to be as good as we think it can be, they're, they're going to have to prove they can hit good pitching because I don't think this Texas team can, as, as good as Ty Madden and some of those other guys on the mound are, like I just don't know that this is a Texas team that, you know, can achieve all of its big picture goals if it's not a team that produces better than what they have offensively. And it could be worse. I mean, they're hitting 256 as a team. And honestly, when I opened the stat page, I thought it was going to be lower um, because you do start to run out of guys really quickly who you would say have had good starts to the season. So I kind of expected it to be a little bit rougher than that. So it, it hasn't been, it hasn't been, it hasn't been as bad as I thought it could be, uh, but they're, they're just going to have to do more, I think. And that that's, I don't, that, that's a very simple thing to say, but I think it's no less true that this is an opportunity for them to kind of prove what they can do against a higher level of pitching than, than what they've seen since that opening weekend. Yeah. We talked about this last week um, when we talked about the, the Houston Texas series. And, you know, I mentioned that Eric Kennedy and Mike Antico were not hitting and that those are two guys that were expected to, to do so that Antico is, uh, you know, grad transfer from St. John's where he was big time player in the big East. Things were expected of him. And Eric Kennedy was, has been one of their better hitters the last couple of years. And the fact that they're both hitting around 200 wasn't good enough. Now there, I think it, actually at the time they're under 200, they've now raised, both of them are above 200 uh, together. They have 12 stolen bases. So they're still finding some ways to be productive, despite the fact that the hits aren't coming in quite the, the way that they would like those two remain 
uh, very important to get going. They they did a bit better against UH, uh, but again, it's it's going to be a step up in competition uh, this weekend, and all the more imperative. Uh, now, one one thing that has helped is that Austin Todd is back. He returned uh, in time for that UH series, and he he jumped right back into it. He got four hits there, got two more hits in the midweek. Having you know a guy like Austin Todd who has you know, this is his fifth year of college baseball, at least. I think it's his fifth year. And, you know, he just has a ton of experience and, and brings a really long track record of success. Having him back in the lineup is really significant for this team. And so now if they can get, you know, some of these other guys that are off to slightly slower starts uh, to, to get going a little bit better, uh, I, I think that's pretty significant, especially because they have also found that Douglas Hodo, who, you know, I came in, you know, relatively hyped, I guess, uh, not, not as hyped as, as some of these guys, not as, as a Trey Faltini, for instance, but, you know, he, he came in with some buzz. He has exceptional speed. You know, he's going pretty well. He's hitting 367. You know, he, he he's done a, a pretty good job filling in with Todd down. They're now finding him at bats with, with Todd back. And so, Mixing a guy like that in, getting Todd back, you know, if they can get another one of these guys going, I, I think that that's that's how you start to see this Texas offense turn things around. But you know, much like I said with with Oklahoma State, like this is not the weekend that your offense is going to suddenly crank into high gear. This is a weekend where if you're going to win, you're going to do it by matching South Carolina pitch for pitch, and you know they can certainly do that with Ty Madden. They're going to need more than just time added. They, they certainly have more than just time added. Kobe Kubachek's off to a good start. They've gotten good innings out of Tanner Witt. Uh, you know, they've, they've got, they've got the horses to do it on the mound. They just, they're really going to need them to, to pitch at the, at a really high level this weekend. And they did that against Houston last weekend, but um, you know, I think the South Carolina offense is, is better than the UH offense. Yeah, I don't think there's too much doubt about that. My, my final thing on this too for South Carolina is that, you know, we've talked a lot about the roller coaster South Carolina has been on as a program in recent years. And this is the type of series that in those years that where they've been really up and down where they might come out and, and they might, they might not look like they necessarily belong in, in a road series against a good team. And so I think this will just be one more, this is one more opportunity for South Carolina to prove that this is a different, a different team and a, and a team that's not going to do kind of the wild swings and, and ups and downs that previous versions of, of South Carolina have, have done. So um, a big opportunity for, for both teams. I'm glad the series is happening. It was uh, from what it seemed like kind of a late add to the, the schedule. So I'm excited that it's, that it's happening. I think it's really going to give us a, a good look at both of these teams and try to figure out what exactly they are. All right, we're going to switch gears out of this Big 12 SEC challenge, and we're going to go back to the ACC where we have number 13 Boston College and number 15 Louisville going at it in Louisville. It's uh, it's another fun one. Uh, in the ACC, BC comes in 9-2, and 2-1. and one. Of course, they won their opening weekend in the ACC at Duke had last weekend at Wake Forest canceled, replaced it with a series at Auburn, which they won in thrilling fashion on Sunday with a eight run erasing an eight run deficit in the ninth inning to, to win it in extra innings there on the planes. 
Louisville comes in at eight and four, one and two. They're fighting it. Uh, we talked a lot about that on the Monday podcast, uh, just how they went down to, to Georgia Tech and lost a series there. Uh, they are they're looking to uh, to get back on track here in the ACC. They beat Murray State, like I mentioned, uh, in the midweek. Uh, but now that they are, uh, they're going to need something bigger against Boston College than what they showed at Georgia Tech. Uh, the BC offense is solid. The BC pitching is solid. Um, it's a it's a difficult team team to play right now. Just ask Auburn. Uh, I I think this should be a pretty fun one in Louisville this weekend. Yeah, I think it has an opportunity too to be. I don't want to use the word ugly because that kind of it puts a value judgment on it, but I think it can be, I think it's going to be a back and forth series. And I think it's an opportunity for Louisville to be not quite, I think we touched on this in the the earlier podcast this week, but it's an opportunity for Louisville to be not quite right and, and back on track and still win this series, because not only are you, you playing at home, but the way that Louisville tried to win or it was forced to try to win games last week against Georgia tech is probably also the way BC is going to allow them to play where, you know, don't look now, but, you know, BC, a program that at least I kind of associate, and I think this maybe is just a cold weather thing, but, you know, typically not a team you're looking at to hit the ball out of the ballpark, but, you know, Sal Fralick and Luke Gold have done just that and have combined for nine homers. And there's, you know, a few other guys in the lineup that have contributed in that way as well. So uh, they're pretty physical offensively. They can obviously score some runs and then, you know, where BC's perhaps soft underbelly is, is the pitching depth. So if you can, you know, push not just paleo, but really if you can push any of their starters out of the game early, you're, you feel pretty good about what you're going to be able to do against the depth of the BC pitching staff. And so this is an opportunity where, you know, maybe Louisville's on the right track. Maybe they're not completely back to the best version of themselves, but I don't know uh, with the, the style of play that is going to, probably take place this weekend. I don't know that Louisville needs to be to its best version of itself to win this series in that specific way. Would it be great if, you know, the pitching staff is, is fully healthy and back in place and they, they pitch really well and the, the offense keeps clicking and Alex Benellas has a breakout weekend. Like, absolutely. But I just don't know that because of the way BC is probably going to want to win these games, if Louisville is going to necessarily have to be that. We talked about it. Uh, before how Louisville was without Glenn Albanese for the last two weeks, they have yet to announce a rotation this weekend. I am not sure his status as a result. Um, having him back would be significant, but as Joe has said, both in print and here on the podcast, he is but one guy. The pitching staff has to figure out a way to be better than they were in Atlanta without him. Uh, they come in with a 416 ERA. I cannot imagine that many times in the Dan McDonald era, if ever, through 12 games, uh, Louisville has had a worse ERA. And so that's, uh, that. That's to me, that's what I'm looking at this weekend. Luke Smith was not good on Sunday against Georgia Tech. That's a guy with a ton of experience, obviously. That's got to be, you know, I, I don't want to put this on the Sunday starter, but uh, you know, in, in a series that we expect to be close, it might come down to that. And so, you know, what's he going to, to have for, for Louisville there, um, is, is definitely something I'm watching. Uh, I was, 
what Michael Kirian did last weekend on Friday, replacing Albany's was, was very, very good against a good Georgia tech team turned in a quality start. Uh, they're going to need that again, whether it's on Friday or Saturday or wherever, because uh, Pelio has, has been pitching to the level of a preseason all American. So they're going to need somebody to step up against him on Friday night. And I don't know how you slow down South Braylick right now. I mean, he's hitting 478. He has four homers. Uh, he has more walks than strikeouts. He, he just is doing an awful lot for that team. And don't look now, but Cody Morissetti, who got off to a slow start, uh, he is turning things around. And, you know, so if, if those two preseason All-Americans get going and Luke Gold keeps hitting, uh, you know, it, it suddenly becomes a, a pretty, pretty, difficult offense to pitch to. I think for BC, a key is the obvious key is of course, getting a good start from Pelio because we talked about how you feel better about the top end of the BC pitching staff versus the depth they have. So that's kind of the obvious thing, but let's set that aside. I think the other thing this weekend is, you know, they need to get some length, whether it's Emmett Sheehan or, or someone else, they, they need to get some length from someone else because I don't think it's a situation where they go into Saturday and they're going, you know, between the, the Saturday and Sunday games, like they, they, it feels like they can't be in a situation where they need their bullpen to cover 10 or 11 innings um, against that Louisville offense that has already, um, I think, you know, we've talked about this before. It, it feels like that unit is maybe struggling a little more than it is because of the, the guys specifically who are struggling, but that's still an offense that can put it on you. I mean, we saw that against Georgia Tech last weekend. So, I just don't think it's a situation where BC is going to be in a good place if they're having to to cover the the majority of the innings over the last two games can't come from the bullpen and, and feel confident about what's gonna what's gonna happen there unless of course you know Louisville's had its own struggles so I guess maybe they'll get into a little bit of a rock fight but certainly that's not going to be what BC's looking for. I, I think that's a really good point because that comeback, as great as it was on Friday, does kind of serve to mask some things. Because ultimately, BC gave up uh, 25 runs over the last two games at Auburn. And, you know, they come out with a series win despite that. But they put themselves in a, a, a spot where they, I don't know, they probably had like 0.1% chance of winning that game as they entered the ninth inning on Sunday. So good on them for, you know, finding a way. But yeah, to to your point, they're, they're going to need something. Somebody besides Pelio needs, needs to help out because, you know, the, the Auburn offense is, is a, a strong offense, uh, but I don't know that it's better than Louisville's offense. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to pitch a little bit better to win this, this series in all likelihood. All right. So that is a significant ACC series. There are other important ones. I think Notre Dame going to Virginia is probably the, uh, the next biggest ACC series of the weekend. Uh, if you're looking for another uh, premium series to, uh, to watch, but Joe, we are going to talk about Oregon and Oregon state. This is not a PAC 12 series. I, I know some of <laughs> you see Oregon played Oregon state. Uh, the that that kind of indicates that it would be a Pac-12 series, but this is a non-conference uh, series in this strange year. Uh, looking for a little more local scheduling, the these two teams are going to play an extra uh, series, and it's uh, it's coming at a, a really fun time. I think you know we uh, we moved Oregon State into the rankings; they're number seventeen this week. 
They are uh, on a 10-game winning streak since losing that that opening day game against Kansas State and preseason All-American Jordan Wicks. So they come in at 10 and one. Oregon is six and two, coming off of a sweep at UC Santa Barbara, one of the loudest results of the weekend uh, last week. And they're uh, you know they're they're a very interesting team. They they weren't able to play opening weekend because of some COVID issues, and then they split a series against Seattle in Eugene. Um, and frankly, weren't really on my radar going into UCSB. I, you know, not surprised they won a game down there, but to win four games down there, I was very surprised by. And they're they hit UCSB's very good pitching staff incredibly well. They pitched pretty well, uh, but really the offense was was the story down there over the weekend. And, and now uh, they have to head to Corvallis uh, and face in another really good pitching staff. So it's going to be interesting to see if this offense can do it two weeks in a row. Uh, and, and meanwhile, Oregon State's pitching staff is going to get what looks to be its biggest challenge of the season to this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm, I'm really excited to see how this series turns out because I feel like I don't have a good read. I, I feel like we're getting a good read on Oregon State. I, you know, I expressed earlier on the earlier this week on the podcast that I, I have some confidence that like, okay, this Oregon state team is, is perhaps the team in the PAC 12. And you warned me a little about this when we previewed the PAC 12 in the podcast, I told Oregon, you. Oregon state's, you know, probably the team that, you know, most likely to come back to, to bite me in, in terms of where I predicted them. And it's not that I had them picked 10th, but um, I had them a little further down and um, you know, they they look like they're well on the way to, to showing that, that I was sleeping on them a little bit. So in Oregon, you, I mean, you mentioned it, you know, a series split with Seattle, they're, not really on the radar for the not having played opening weekend and then that result. And then, yeah, to see what they did and just come out and, and just bludgeon UC Santa Barbara in a lot of ways was uh, really, really impressive. And one thing I find really fascinating about the way Oregon is made up here is that, you know, they've got a couple of guys who are leading the way. One of them, and you wrote a little bit about this in off the bat is Kenyon Yovan, who, you know, former, you know, used to be thought of as more of a pitcher, um, you know, had some injury issues back in, I think it was 2019 that kept him from being as effective as he would have otherwise been on the mound. He becomes more of a hitter last year was awesome. I saw him last year when I down in Arizona, the first weekend of the season. And he's now that he's healthy and back in the lineup, he's picked up where he left off uh, hitting with a ton of power, just a, really a physical presence in the order. And I think, it's maybe a little more overlooked is at least through two weeks, what Colin Kafka has done in the rotation for them. And he's a guy who also at various times has been really highly thought of. And the stats just haven't necessarily reflected that, you know, walks have been a problem at different points. You know, last year he was a little bit better, but then of course the season got banged, but he's been really, really good through two weeks. And that's a guy that I don't want to say that I, you know, I don't want to say gave up on, but just kind of thought like, you know, he's a guy who's been highly regarded who I just don't know if it's going to work out for him. You know, I, I don't know if, if he's going to, to put it all together. And, and there's still a lot of baseball left this season, but, you know, he's been the best version of himself through two weeks. And I think that's a really good development for Oregon. But you, you mentioned the offense, and I think that's what uh, – I'll circle back to say I think that's what stands out to me as well, not just the result necessarily. Uh, that, is, that is also part of it. But this is an Oregon team that it, you definitely would not do word association with Oregon in, in offense in recent years. And there's a, I think you wrote this off the bat as well. There's just a physicality to this lineup that there hasn't been in a long time. And Yovan's part of it. Gabe Matthews is part of that. 
their other guys, but they're just, they weren't, you, you could put four runs on Oregon and feel pretty comfortable with that. Like you might be able to just coast home for a win. Um, this offense has a little more physicality to it is a little more of a threat and that's going to keep them in games. Even when they don't get the level of pitching they've gotten through um, the first couple of weeks. Yeah. That's something that uh, Wazikowski told me is just how much more physical they look right now. And uh, it's showing they've already hit 10 home runs in eight games and they've done that both at home uh, in Eugene for four games where it's difficult to hit home runs, especially this time of year when it's cold PK park plays as a pretty big pitchers park. And then they did that at Santa Barbara, which is not as extreme of a pitchers park, but doing it against the Gauchos pitching staff is again, significant. So to, to see them running the ball out of the ballpark the way they have, four of those are Yovan. He's only played four games. He didn't play that first weekend against Seattle. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's impressive. And you're going to have to figure out how to pitch to Yovan. I, I don't know that anyone has particularly figured it out over the last two seasons as, become, as he's become more hitter only uh, rather than more of a two-way player early in his career. Uh, that's, uh, that's something to watch. I don't know how Oregon State is going to manage that. But I do think also that this lineup, at least right now, looks like it, it has enough to it that you can't just sit here and say, I'm not going to pitch to Yovan. UCSB tried that on Sunday. They basically stopped pitching to him after Yovan homered in his first at-bat on Sunday. Uh, it didn't work out for them. They, they lost that that anyway. They, they intentionally walked Yovan twice with the bases empty and nobody out, or, or two outs, excuse me. And... and that did not work out for them. That actually started the rally that won Oregon the game in the 10th inning. Um, so not pitching to him is not really working right now. Pitching to him is not really working. I, I don't, I'll be interested to see how Oregon State goes about attacking him uh, because he is, he is the, the focal point of this offense. So I, I think the, the key for me for Oregon State is, is finding a, an answer for that. I think that I trust – Oregon State offense to uh, to match Oregon this weekend. They're hitting really well against some teams that I think can pitch pretty well. BYU and Grand Canyon both have solid arms uh, with the, against the teams in the Arizona tournament that they have in their surprise. In surprise, it's Gonzaga, New Mexico, and Kansas State. They have some good pitching. Oregon State is hitting 309 as a team. They're you know they're they're. They're, they're scoring runs. They're, they're averaging seven runs a game. They're not running the ball out of the ballpark quite as much. Um, but I, I think this is just a team that, that knows how to produce some runs, despite the fact that they don't run, they don't hit for a ton of power. It's just a, a, a team that, that moves, moves runners over, gets them in, and, and, and figures it out from there. Andy Armstrong off to an exceptional start to the season, both offensively and defensively. Um, you know, he's really making a difference at shortstop. And then, you know, Troy Clonch is doing his thing. Joe Casey's doing his thing. Kyler McMahon, Ryan Ober. Those are veteran hitters that know what they're doing at the plate. And uh, that's what's working for Oregon State right now. So I have no concerns about them offensively this weekend, particularly. I don't really have massive concerns about them on the mound. I mean, you look at what Kevin Abel is doing. You look at what Jake Mulholland is doing. They're, they're really leading the way. And you would expect them to. They have the experience. They have the talent. It's just right now, I don't know what you do with Kenyon Yovan because he can change a game in one at bat. The Oregon State offense is one of the, the it's one of the few lineups that there's like genuine like suspense over what the lineup card is gonna say because 
they're one of those teams and they've been this in the past. I feel like that. I think that the 2019 team was a little bit like this. Now <laughs> that's probably where they want the comparisons to stop because the 2019 team kind of famously, they did host though. Know, they did host. Yeah. It was one, I remember writing about that team when they, when they got eliminated in that regional, because it was, it was basically, they never found somebody other than Adley Rutschman to really elevate that offense. And so it was like Adley Rutschman. And then they were just like moving the chess pieces around him and it never amounted to, to anything that was resembling like a, a truly potent deep lineup. And so I don't mean, I don't make that comparison now for that reason, but I make it because they do move a decent number of pieces in and out. And so, you know, from game to game, you don't necessarily know exactly what you're going to see in the Oregon state lineup, but to this point, it's been, it's been effective. And it's how, you know, you're in a great place with what you've done so far this season, where you talk about keys to winning certain series and, all we kind of have to say is just do what you've done so far, because you're right. I mean, Oregon State has Oregon State has pitched pretty well, and it doesn't feel like they've really pitched over their heads necessarily. You know, Kevin Abel has has exceeded expectations, maybe, but we knew this was always in there that that he was talented. And as Oregon State has often had in the past, they've got you know a handful of really dynamic bullpen arms that they're leaning on, and that doesn't feel like a super big reach for them. And offensively yeah, they're hitting better than 300, but they're not hitting a ton of home runs. They don't have one guy who's, you know, um, doing anything that stands out as necessarily unsustainable. Although, you know, Andy Armstrong's not going to hit 429 most likely, but um, he's a guy we knew was going to be an important piece of the puzzle for them. So that doesn't feel too out of character there either. So they're in a really good place where they really just kind of need to keep the ball rolling. And I think they'll be in, in good shape this weekend, but there might not be a series that I'm more intrigued to see the result of because I believe just about anything in terms of what we end up seeing when we, when we wrap this thing up on Sunday. The most unsustainable thing about Oregon state to this point, I would say is just how good their bullpen has been. They basically don't allow runs. Um, so that is one thing that going forward, they uh, you might see some sort of regression. Um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, uh, but they, as a bullpen, have allowed only about uh, seven runs, maybe a couple more. The, Will Frisch has allowed three runs. He started and relieved. I'd have to look at the game by game. But they've allowed less than 10 runs as a bullpen uh, to this point. And that is, I mean, realistically, they're, they're going to there are going to be teams that get to that Oregon State bullpen a little bit, or else we're talking about the best bullpen in the sports history, potentially. Uh, so while I don't doubt the depth the, of what Oregon State can run out there, there is there there's going to be a time, maybe this weekend, uh, when their bullpen is going to be tested in a way that it hasn't really been to this point. And you know, so right now, if you're Oregon, you're looking at it like you got to get to these starters. And these starters are Kevin Abel, Connor Jerpy, and Jake Fennings. And like, good luck with that. Like those guys are really good too. So I'll, uh, I'll be interested to see. I like, like, like Joe, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I love the fact that these two rivals are going at it this early in the season. Uh, and that we also get them uh, playing again later this season. I, I, uh, I, maybe they could, I don't know that they want to make this a thing going forward, but I wouldn't be opposed to it. If they turn this into a uh, Long Beach Fullerton style uh, we we play both a conference series and a non-conference series in all all in one year. Yeah, it's been a the actual has done a little bit of this. I presume it's because 
some of those schools out West are a little limited in terms of where they can travel. But last weekend's Arizona State Utah series, which of course was not as much of an attraction as this one, but they, they did a similar thing. So we're seeing this a little bit around. I'm also hopeful that this will be a series that we might be able to see online as I'm looking at the Oregon State. It is. Schedule. They are yeah. they're okay. streaming this uh, at Oregon State's live stream, um, wherever. Uh, I, I have not done the streaming guide for this week, uh, but yes, it is being streamed. You can uh, you can see it on on Pac12Network.com or whatever the the exact situation is. Yeah, yeah. So versus, you know, I, my optimism came from where it says on TV. It says Oregon State live stream as opposed to you know Pac12 networks, which is you know basically. Ah, yes, I, I see what you were doing there. Yes. Yeah. So um, typically, I, I didn't know if this would fall like. Basically, any, it's been my experience anyway, that basically any official Pac 12 conference game is going to be behind, you know, the Pac 12 network's wall. Um, but the non conference games, the schools do a pretty decent job of just putting out a free live stream of, of that kind of stuff. And so I didn't know if this was going to fall under what they just stream widely available or if the Pac 12 was going to come in and put it under the umbrella of, of Pac 12 networks. But at this point, it does look like it is going to be available. Um, on a stream. So there is a hope of actually being able to actually being able to see it, which is, which is good in my opinion. All right, Joe, those are the games I picked out for us to, uh, to preview. Now you get, you get one of your own. So where are we headed for our final uh, series? Okay. We are headed to beautiful Boca Raton, uh, which translates to rat mouth. So not a, not a great city. I've always thought that was kind of funny. Boca Raton is this place where people like to retire and it's thought of as this kind of idyllic, um, you know, place where, where, you know, people from the North come to visit and, and retire and you go to these, you know, club med type places. And it's, and yet it's a town named after a, a rat's mouth. So uh, not beautifully named, but a beautiful place. Uh, Indiana State's coming to visit. And so it's the reason I picked it because we've talked about FAU a decent amount. So it kind of felt like going back over territory we've already covered a little bit, but I do think it's worth talking about, not just from the on-field standpoint, but from what it might mean, it's, it's, it's really early to do this kind of stuff. But when you're talking mid-majors, you kind of have to start to game this stuff out. And I think this is a big series for both sides in terms of if they're going to be serious about being at-large teams. Um, but on-field stuff first, uh, Indiana State has been really solid in the rotation so far. Jeremy Guerrero is a veteran who has seems like he's taken a step forward in the rotation. He's been really, really excellent. Um, Javin Drake who is a graduate transfer from Western Illinois and on Western Illinois teams that were not particularly good while he was there, he tended to be kind of like a, a bright spot for the Leathernecks. And, and he's really come in and been exactly what the Sycamores needed from him right away. Uh, the bullpen's led by Connor Finlong, who's, uh, you know, hasn't a lot of run in 10 innings, hasn't walked a guy either. Um, I think the bullpen at Indiana State actually might get a little bit better as time goes on because one guy who's not pitching particularly well right now is Tyler Grower. Uh, the peripherals are good on him. I think he's just had some, he has been hit around a little bit, but I also think he's had some bad luck in terms of how those hits have been clustered. If you look at the peripherals, but he's been one of the more reliable relievers, the mid-major level for the last few years. So I think he probably gets it turned around. The lineup is fairly top heavy. They've got a few guys who are, are really hitting the ball well, and they've got a handful of guys who are really struggling. There's really not a ton of in between there, but Max Wright, uh, who is a catcher by trade, uh, also sees time DHing, things like that, um, is um, the, the best hitter they have there. He's also a guy that I think 
we, we said this about a lot of guys, but, but he's the type of player at the mid-major level who really makes a difference here because I, I saw Indiana State a couple of falls ago when uh, they were playing a game against Illinois in the fall and scouts really like Max Wright. And um, so he's a guy maybe in a fuller draft where he's not there at Indiana State. So, um, you know, he's a guy they're excited to have back and he's been um, every bit as good as they could have hoped he would be. FAU is kind of what you see is what you get. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be a matter of how well do they pitch because we know they're going to put some runs on the board. Although you look at the offensive numbers and I guess some of this is colored by they've played tough midweek games, you know, Miami, Florida. So they're not feasting in the midweek like some other teams might at this time of year. But so the offense doesn't have the eye-popping numbers you might think, but that's where their bread is buttered. Uh, they're going to try to score runs and beat you that way, especially with in the rotation, their most reliable arm is Jacob Josie but he's not pitched since opening weekend. I could not find any sort of update. He is not in their rotation this weekend. They have already released the rotation. This is a Thursday, Friday, Saturday series. So if you're listening to this, they may have already played the first game, but um, so they're just, they're going to have to cobble together enough pitching to get the job done. uh, Will FAU. And they've been better since that opening weekend. They actually probably haven't been half bad since that opening weekend because that opening weekend was so bad. So maybe they're a little bit better than I'm giving them credit for at this early stage because um, we're, we're coming from such a from such a difficult place to start with for them. But the real reason I kind of bring this series up is because I do think um, this is a, an important series to watch when you start to talk about uh, postseason positioning. We know what FAU's game is going to be here. They want they want to, to, to finish first or second in the Conference USA, which they have often done in recent years. And then it's important they pick off midweek games against Florida, Miami, teams like that. And they've already done so with the game against Florida. So they're kind of on track, if you will. Indiana State was a team I didn't know if they were necessarily going to be ready to compete for an at-large this year, but it's too early to put a lot in RPI. And who knows if RPI is even going to matter this year because of the, the situation with the schedule. But but they are number nine in RPI. Um, again, too early to put a lot of stock into that specifically. But when you look under the hood, you start to see the makings of, of what it will need to be for them to, to, as long as they do what they need to do in the Missouri Valley, they can't finish fourth or fifth in the Valley. But if they finish first or second, or maybe even third, if it's a good year in the Valley, you can see in their resume, the makings of what could be a helpful, help, helpful item. So they, everything has been on the road or neutral site. First weekend, they lose a series at Pittsburgh, a neutral site series against Pittsburgh, but they win a game. And that's important. And then I think we've seen at this point that Pittsburgh is probably better than we were giving them credit for. So that at a bare minimum is probably not going to be anything that hurts you from an RPI standpoint. Second weekend, they go on the road, split four games with Tennessee. I think that's going to age like a fine wine. I think that's really going to be a really helpful series. And then last weekend they go to FIU and sweep FIU. Don't know how good FIU is going to be, but that's a road sweep. So at a bare minimum, they did exactly what they needed to do there. So you know, don't look now, but Indiana State has already started to kind of chisel at what looks like an at-large resume if they can do what they need to do in the Missouri Valley. And that's the big, the big factor here. But if they go and win this series against FAU, I think they're well on their way as long as they don't fall on their face in Missouri Valley play. And so I think that's what I'm looking for in this series is, you know, which team comes out of this feeling pretty good about what they've done in non-conference ahead of going into a conference season where they're just not going to get too, too much help in terms of true resume builders. You know, I'm not, we ranked FAU this week. They're number 25. I'm not, I'm not really sold on them having staying power. 
uh, what they've done to this point merits the spot in the top 25, but they're going to have to find an answer on the mound. I think, uh, and, and this weekend, I, Indiana State's more of a pitching outfit than a hitting outfit, so I don't know that it's going to bite them this weekend, but they just, they don't have a whole lot of answers to this point that I see, and, you know, getting Josie back would be a important bit of that for them, but, you know, they, uh, they, they, they can't, they can't go through conference USA like this. I don't think, I mean, maybe conference USA, but like, I don't know. I, I, I just think that when you see a 764 ERA, even understanding how screwy that is because of what happened opening weekend against UCF, when uh, they gave up 41 runs in three games, and it hasn't really been like that since, uh, it, it's not, it's not a recipe for success, but at the same time, they just gave up 17 runs in two games against Gulf coast. And, you know, I, that, that wound up being a two game series because of a rain out, they, they split it as a result, but you know, they, they are laying an awful lot on their offense at this point, And that's just not sustainable if they can't find some answers on the mound. Meanwhile, I really like what Indiana State's done to this point. They're 4-0 right now on this road trip through Florida, having swept uh, FIU last weekend and won a midweek at Gulf Coast. If they come out of there with six wins, uh, you know, they're therefore having won this weekend. I mean, that would be sensational for them and their at-large hopes, to your point. I mean, the what they've done against Pitt and Tennessee is important. Um, they have winnable road series coming up against UAB and St. Louis. And then it's in a Valley play and, you know, there, there are good solid teams in the Valley to your point, there aren't marquee series wins to be had there, but if, if it's just about producing a really strong overall resume, I, they, they have plenty of opportunities for that. One thing I do have a concern with going forward with them is they don't play home game until April 16th. That's just a really long time to be on the road. They're, they're, they're piling up road wins and that's great. That's great for the resume, but that may eventually take something of a toll, but right now, not a concern. They're rolling. Uh, one one player you didn't mention for the Sycamores is Jeremy Guerrero. He was excellent last weekend against FIU. He struck out 15. Um, Indiana State's a it's 15 and eight innings. He's Indiana State's a program that's had some really good pitchers come through there over the years, uh, but those 15 strikeouts are the most for any Sycamores pitcher since I believe it was 1984. And so if you're going to roll through the last 35 years or so of Indiana state pitching, it's a very impressive list that didn't do what, what he just did. So he's a great guy to have leading the rotation. Uh, they, they have other guys around him. Uh, I, I really like them. I don't know if they win this series. Uh, I certainly think they can. It makes for a very interesting uh, matchup here, though, because they are so pitching and FAU is so hitting dependent. Yeah, Jeremy Guerrero, taking a bit, he's been more of like a swing man the last few years. Um, so, yeah, it looks like he's really taken a step forward. That would be huge for them because that was a big question I had about Indiana State going into last year, which is to say I had the question going into this year because you kind of roll it over again. But yeah, he's been a little bit of a bit of a revelation for them. That's that was really good news. I agree with you. Like April, whatever it was, 16th, like that's an extraordinarily long time to not play a home game. That seems um 
Yeah, that seems very extreme. Anyway, that's, I mean, that's like a month from the end of the season. Um, anyway. I mean, especially considering we're talking about a team that's in Southern Indiana. Like we're not talking about this, this team being in South Bend, right. uh, which right. is at the Northern end of Indiana. You know, we're talking about a team in Terre Haute, which is in, in pretty Southern Indiana. They have turf there. Like uh, they aren't doing midweek games once they get into Valley play, but you know, I don't, I don't know if they are or aren't, you know, they played a midweek game this week. I, I don't know if they could maybe add one uh, in between the UAB or SLU series or something, but yeah, I mean, to this point, there's nothing, uh, there, there's no home game for a whole nother month after this. Yeah. One thing I, I'm probably going to end up writing about in the next few weeks. I'm trying to give it a couple of weeks to let some of the data normalize a little bit, but I'm starting to look at the Valley, the Missouri Valley again, and I, I'm starting to get the feeling the Missouri Valley is doing it again, where we're going to look up and the records aren't going to be like super impressive, but they're going to be right there from an RPI standpoint. And I think it's going to make an interesting test case to in a year when we all kind of agree the RPI is not going to be as strong a measurement as it is in a normal year. How much do, how much does it still end up being a major metric in postseason considerations because I think the Valley's in a situation when you look at what Indiana State has already done if Illinois like Illinois State has not gotten off to a great start but their schedule is tough enough that if they start winning games they're going to be back right back in that position too and then Southern Illinois is still undefeated at 11 and 0 uh, Bradley is still in the top 50 in RPI um, you know just sitting at three and three and that suggests to me at this early stage I think you can glean some things from the early RPI and oftentimes it's when when there's a team kind of just hanging around like that, not at the top, the stuff at the top, like George Washington being three in the RPI is, is a little bit wonky. But when you look at the teams that are kind of more in like the 30 to 50 range that just kind of feel like they're hanging around for maybe a reason you don't understand, oftentimes that's an early hint that that's a team the RPI likes for some reason or another. And so well, for Bradley, that's because they took a game off of number one ball state. <laughs> right. And that, you know, that, that, that ends up being something that might be kind of wonky and unsustainable, but I think a lot of times you can look at it and start to, to glean some things from it. And so now if, if, if in Valley play, everybody craters and comes to the middle and everybody finishes slightly above or slightly below 500 is not going to matter, but uh, th- they are starting to show signs that the Missouri Valley might be at it again. And I think that would be fascinating this year because I think it will be a good test case for how much the, something like the RPI is going to matter when it's all said and done. I think that's right. Um, ultimately to put a bow on this, I like Indiana state. I think they can win this weekend. I wouldn't come out and say that they'll definitely win this weekend, but I, I think they can win this weekend. Um, I, I think that pitching is is for real, uh, ultimately. Uh, what they've done to this point is has convinced me of that. So there's a, there's a very intriguing series to watch down there in, in Boca, uh, as, uh, as Joe highlighted there. All right, that's going to do it for us today on this edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. A lot of exciting baseball to be played across the country this week. We will have it all covered at BaseballAmerica.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill, and Joe is at Joe Healy BA. We will be back here with another edition of the Baseball America College Podcast, wrapping up all of the, the weekend's action on Monday, if you are subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're getting your podcasts, it'll pop right there into your phone uh, when we post it on Monday. So 
uh, we really appreciate it if, if you do so. And you get the benefit of not having to wonder, did Joe and Teddy finish their podcast yet? Like, you'll know. It'll just be there in your phone. So uh, help us help you, I guess. Or help us. I don't know. Whatever. Five-star reviews, if you can. We appreciate it. Um, so we'll, we'll be back here on Monday. We'll have a lot more to talk about then. want to thank you all for listening to this edition of the Baseball America College podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next week. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.